so sweet is the name of Jesus. Father, I know that sometimes we may ask what's in a name. Father, there's uh, one thing I know all throughout Scripture. When people experienced you, they tried their best to put you into words. I'm reminded of Abraham who who gave you the name Jehovah Jireh because he completely understood what it was, your provision for him, a replacement sacrifice. Those names, Redeemer, Healer, Forgiver, those are real names. And it's our best way to attempt to describe who you are. There are also ways that you've described yourself to us in your word. And for those of us that have tasted and seen the goodness of God, we understand that. And God, it's a simple prayer request today that people come to know you. Father, would you... um, Get me out of the way. Get all of us out of the way. I thank you, Lord, that we have um, a praise team that fears you, that does not desire to bring glory to themselves, no, but desire to usher people into the presence of the living God. And it's the goal of, uh, of all of us as preachers as well, that we would get out of the way and we would simply take people by the hand and sit them at a bench one-on-one with Jesus. That's what I'm praying today. That as we begin to unpack elements of the gospel, Lord, that you would, you would just reveal yourself to us, God. Even if it's just a little glimmer, God. So be magnified today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. be seated. I don't know about you, but every time I see a baptism, it just stirs my soul. Is, is Hannah still in here? No. Well, I just, welcome to the family. What a beautiful gospel reality. When we, uh, when we partake in communion, when, we, when we're able to, as a body, witness baptism, those are, those are physical symbols that God gives us to remind us of the gospel. And um, I'm praying that your, your souls were stirred as well as uh, you experienced that. And uh, it's been such a blessing. Uh, I've been pondering on the, um, on the message all week um, of, uh, of heaven. And um, it's been so good. Been so encouraged, been thinking about the, just the reality of heaven and how it stirs up our soul. And uh, today we're going to be coming to uh, a text here in Second Peter, 
chapter 1. And we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 9. But we definitely live in a day today where there's a lot of false gospels. Of course, maybe a couple of things that you and I can point to is that we live in a world, we live in a postmodern world. And um, we know we can, as Christians, we can easily identify things that are outside of the church that are false gospels. For example, coming back to postmodernism, I mean, the belief that one person says, well, I think the earth is flat. And the person says, well, I think it's round and I can prove it. And both come to the conclusion that, well, that's your truth and this is my truth, whatever. But I don't think many of you folks fall into that realm here. I think many of the folks here are sold out on the fact that there's one God and one truth. And I think that there are many of you in here that uh, would fight for that and many of you in here that would die for that as well. And although I'm concerned, you know, as a pastor about these different types of false teaching, I think we often forget about false teaching within the church that can arise, within the body. And as I told you, we're going to be coming to the text in Second Peter. But two books in the Bible, in the New Testament, Second Peter and Jude, they're both known as the dark corners of the New Testament. I mean, just even think about this. When was the last time that you did a thorough study of Second Peter and Jude? Or when was the last time that you heard um, just even a thorough, like, expositional sermon through Second Peter and Jude? And they're both very controversial texts, especially Second Peter, where theologians say they are divided as to, did Peter even write the thing? Perhaps you and I heard familiar verses. But as we come to Second Peter, right, I operate in the belief that Peter did indeed write this. And he wrote it to professing believers. And he wrote it specifically, both Second Peter and Jude were written to combat heresy in the church. And, and they weren't believers only in Asia Minor, but they're believers everywhere. False teaching abounded back in the days it does today. Theologian D. Edmund Hebert explains, if the recipients of this letter are the same as those of First Peter... And this information made the urge to write doubly pressing. The first epistle had been written to encourage them to steadfastness in bearing persecution from without. Now they face the even more serious danger arising from the presence of heretical teachers working within the church. Peter countered this danger before it could produce its devastating results. So remember now, Peter here in Second Peter, writing this letter, he's, uh, he's advanced in his, in his age. We know that Second Peter was written prior to the year AD 68 because we know that Peter died under the reign of Emperor Nero. And he had very personal considerations in writing this letter. He one desired that the believers would be strengthened. He wanted to leave something lasting to the church, the body of believers. The letter would need to instruct the believers in his time, but it would also need to have a double effect. Not only would it have to not only did Peter have to leave something for his believers who were combating these false teachings, he also had to think about, what about the legacy of the church? Double-fold that this letter would impact us today, and that was his intent. Even a theologian that denies that Peter wrote this letter states, we should not neglect the possibility that if Peter himself had really wished to address Christians living after his death, it would, be, it would have been the ideal form for his purpose in this letter. Like Jude, the purpose of this letter is to combat heresy, 
They were both written to expose and defeat the intrusion of false teachers into the church. And how was he going to do this? He wanted to stir the minds of the believers by reminding them to remember the truth. Look at 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. One of my favorite passages here, especially as a pastor. Peter writes, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Remember, towards the end of his life, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to any time to recall these things. In 2 Peter 1, just to give you a quick breakdown of this book, verses 3 to 21, Peter reminds them of the essential nature of the new life that they've entered. Here's the new life that you guys have entered. You know, these, these are professing believers he's talking to. Chapter 2, 1 through 22, he characterizes and warns against the false teachers that abound. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Peter refutes their specific attack on the hope of Jesus' return. And to close it out, verse 14 to 18, he urges the believers to live in accordance with their Christian hope, which is who? Which is who, people? Jesus. Now with that, let's go to the text, 2 Peter 1.1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, this is written to professing believers, people who are Christians. And right off the bat, it's this, we see the humility and identity of Peter. He gives both his name in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Simeon Peter, you know, giving this, 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 informing his identity as this apostle who has been called. And he begins to tell this, the, the professing believers that one, I'm a servant and an apostle. Servant first, apostle second. A bondservant of Jesus and an apostle sent by Jesus. I remember a man, uh, when I had come to faith, who discipled me, told me, you know, Chris, you have, to, um, you have to look at the life of Paul and Peter. And who are you? And he wasn't saying this as some, you know, doctrinal creed that's, that's concrete and absolute, but he was just trying to get me to look at the life of Paul and Peter. You know, and he, was, he, said, he said it in his way, you know, you have Paul, who uh, had his Damascus Road experience, and it was a big thing, and from that point forward, it was changed. You know, just boom, that's, that's many of us. Not saying that Paul never wrestled with sin or struggled with it. We see that clearly in his letter uh, to, in Romans. We also have Peters, right, who, um, who are called by God in the beginning of the Gospels. But, uh, I mean, just the scriptures are so adamant about pointing out Peter's failures, right? At, not, even, not even before the resurrected Christ, but even post-resurrection. Galatians chapter 2, when he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, Paul had to confront him in his face and say, your actions are not lined up with the gospel. But nonetheless, Peter was a disciple of Jesus, who, of course, loved the Lord. And I tell you that because I so relate to Peter. It can be a very emotional. Can, I've spoken large words and then cowered in, in fear moments later. Even post-resurrection, like right after getting saved and experiencing the risen Christ, still failing and, and making mistakes, needing Paul's in their life to straighten them out. And we look at John chapter 142. 
We see this in the life of Peter, and we're going we're gonna to follow this trajectory. I initially was going to do this through Paul, but, uh, but just was reading through the text, and I was like, man, we're going to do this through Peter. So it resonates with me. John 1.42, he brought him to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, little rock. Right off the bat, Jesus had chosen Peter and gave him a name, changed his identity. You think Jesus knew those mistakes he was going to make? Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter. After, after this good confession and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus uses a play on words. Here he talks to Peter and he says, Petros, a small rock. And on this rock, Petros, a big rock, I will build my church. And here's where we differ from, from Catholic tradition. Right? We, uh, Catholics will take this to believe that Peter is, is, the, is the person Jesus was talking about. But we believe that it was a confession that Peter had confessed. And what was that? That Jesus is the son of the living God. And I believe that's more in line with scripture. Why? Because Acts 4, 11 through 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The church was going to be built on that foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, Peter, as an apostle, had, uh, had the privilege of being, uh, being part of that administration. <clears throat> and in Luke 22, 31-34, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Remember the, the big boast? Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And in Luke 22, just moments later, we see Peter deny Jesus three times. And in Luke twenty two sixty two, it says, and he went out and wept bitterly. And I tell you this because, I mean, this is Peter. The, the same man that wrote this epistle here, this letter of Second Peter. And then looking at John 21, 15 through 19, after Jesus had resurrected. You remember that they had, They had breakfast together, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, Follow me. Here's a, I mean, 
to sidetrack a little bit, here's even another just evidence of the resurrection. How different were these men after they witnessed the resurrected Jesus? Peter the coward was indeed Peter the brave. Not because he had something in himself, because Christ in him, the hope of glory. And it's the same Peter that we come back to in this epistle. He writes in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Another word for that word multiplied is increasing abundantly. Again, he's writing to believers and he's saying, he's talking to the believers saying, grace and peace just increase in your life. Grace, the thing that we don't deserve, that we've been given in Jesus through his death. And peace is a result of that grace because those of us that have placed our trust in Jesus, we now have peace. We've been at peace with God now. So he's saying, I pray that you would grow increasingly in these things. And this is so important because I think oftentimes as Christians, we think that, you know, the gospel is just the door that we enter into our faith. Keep in mind, Peter is talking to existing believers. He's saying, no, I pray that you continue to grow in this understanding of grace and peace, that you are given something you don't deserve. And because of that, you have something that you didn't, that you don't deserve, that it's a result of that thing, which is peace. You're at peace with God. Nothing should fret you. And it's in the sphere when he says that those things be multiplied to you, he's saying in the knowledge of God. And in the Greek, it's E-N, N. And what it's signifying is that's the sphere that you're to grow in. So how is grace and peace supposed to be multiplied to you? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter's saying everything we need and the sphere in which we obtain it. The word life is the new spiritual life of the believer in Christ. And it's a direct opposite of death in the Greek. It's the antithesis of it. In 1 Peter 1.3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This life is a result of being begotten by God. The new life. Godliness, it means to be reverent or devout, to worship. D. Edmund Hebert explains it denotes that piety, which characterized by Godward attitude, does that which is well-pleasing with him. The term thus involves the inner attitude of reverence as well as the God-pleasing activity that flows from it, follows it. So we see here Peter's telling us that, the, that life and godliness are both gifts from God above. The order is critically important as well. It's life and godliness, not godliness and life. This is how it's structured in the Greek. But as sinners, we like to reverse this, don't we? We like to think that it's through what we do. We like to think that it's through our attitude. If I just change the person who I am internally, if I, if I just act a different way, then that'll lead me to life, discovery of the self. It's first by life that godliness is granted because Christ must do that work first. He must birth the new life in you. Do you remember the difference between organic and mechanical change? Mechanical change, right, is the way we typically as Christians advise each other. You got a problem, why don't you pray? Why don't you read your Bible? 
Why don't you go to small group? Why don't you go see a counselor? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And we think that by some external conformity, it's going to change the heart. But what we're doing is just throwing all these things to do on a heart that doesn't want it. Whereas organic change is like a tree. You know, if it's healthy internally, it's going to bear fruit. And that life is only begotten by God. That's why Peter says life and godliness. It's a gift given to us by God through union with Jesus Christ that we're given grace and peace. And the word granted in the Greek is in the perfect tense, right? Here's a little quick, little quick lesson some of you may already know. But if something is in the perfect tense in the Greek, it refers to something that occurred at a specific point in time in the past that, has result, that, that, that results continuously to today. We're granted. And in certain contexts in Scripture, the results are permanent. And this would be an example of one of them. Life and godliness. They've been granted. All right? Because of what Jesus has done, we get the results today continuously. Second half of verse 3. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is a, a personal knowledge. Like it, it's really the, the word is, is this intimate knowledge of knowing someone better and better. Someone that you've already known. Remember, this is written to, to Christians. So Peter's like, man, I'm praying that you continue just to grow more and more, more intimate in your knowledge of Jesus. Know him more and more and more. And they didn't receive this gift through the emptying of themselves. Okay? Please get that. A lot of the Eastern mysticism, right, is, you know, you can't learn anything new because your cup's too full, so you need to empty your cup, okay? Peter's not encouraging this mysticism, okay, or, or that, 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 that this knowledge of Jesus is obtained through some unconscious behavior. Jesus commanded, never commanded you to leave your brain at the door. And the reception of this gift involves rational and spiritual reaction of its recipients, For example, theologians would call this a living theology. We don't just study theology to be doctrinal fatheads. Some people do. And to some people, the Bible becomes an idol. I admit that. But theology, when you break down those two words, theos and logos, it's a study of God. Have you ever done a Bible study? Have you ever read a Bible? Have you ever, has, that, has the scriptures ever generated questions? Well, guess what? You're a theologian. It's a study of God. And it is a deep pursuit. And even though God has chosen to reveal himself in simple ways, how many of you believe that God is also very deep and profound? I feel like when I come to the scriptures, like, you know, even John 3, 16, and being able to recite that, but still reading that and studying the book of John, and you're just blown away by the glory of Jesus. And this knowledge, if it's it's legit knowledge, okay, it's always going to point back to Jesus. Verse 2. And then Peter talks about it, that this knowledge leads us to his glory and excellence. You think of Revelation. Last week, Brad preached on uh, some text there and gave us a picture of heaven, right? And he- heaven is, is where all the saints of all colors. Isn't that Revelation 7? Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture? I could read that verse over and over again, right? That people from every nation... Okay, every people group is going to be at the throne saying worthy is a lamb. Can you picture that? 
I mean, there's going to be this diversity. So it's not going to say that, that there's no diversity in heaven. There's going to be this diversity, but there's going to be this unity. It's like the Godhead, that even though within the Trinity, it, there's a diversity, there's this unity, right? And we're going to, it's like we're going to see it, and we're going, to, we're going to see all these different people saying, worthy is the Lamb of every single people group, worshiping Jesus. And we see that. We see pictures. And what about the rider on the white horse, which is Jesus? who has uh, written on his leg, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who has a robe drenched in blood, whose eyes, right? I mean, the, the John describes his eyes like swords coming out of them, right? And everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know that's Jesus. Glory and excellence. Another word for excellence here is virtue. Have you ever read through the Gospels and you just look at the way Jesus dealt with people? And you see just that virtue that, that spilled out of his life. And, and, you know, I can't tell you how many times I read through the Gospels and I looked at how he encountered people and I just broke down to my knees. Jesus, how could you do that? John chapter 8, when he protected the woman who committed adultery. Jesus, I don't get it. How are you able to just handle that situation? Protect her, protect her dignity. Show her the picture of the Gospel and tell her that I don't condemn you to leave your life of sin now. Does that not blow your mind away? Peter is saying that this knowledge will always lead you to his glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, by which it's referring to Jesus and his glory and excellence, what Peter just said. In other words, it's the life and Character of Jesus Christ. These promises are additional gifts that we have through Jesus. And again, the same word here, it's granted. Remember the, the perfect tense? That these promises now are given to us. Promises that have been made in the, in the old are available today. And we are, to, we are to bank on them. We are to rest on them, on the promises of God. And again, the results are permanent again in this context. The promises of God are permanent. And Peter, of course, is talking about promises, but not only promises, because promises on their own are foolish, right? If you just take promises on their own, they're foolish. When someone is making a promise to you, what's going on in your mind? Well, I want to first know who is this person that's making the promise, right? Um, I've, got, I've gotten texts recently, and so has my wife um, from... Uh, a company that claims to be Target. I don't know. I think many of you have received this text as well. Have you received that where it says free $250 uh, Target gift card? Just um, click on this link and, you know, with all those smartphones that we have, you click on the link and you put some information in and boom, they've, they've got your uh, information. But it's a fraud. It's an empty promise. So when we come to this text, right, Peter is talking about a promise, but once again, it's pointing to the person of the promise. This promise that Peter is talking about, who is making them? He's saying, now look at the character of God. Now you think, what do you know of the character of God? Look at the Old Testament. Look at just Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. These promises are true. Tim Keller explains, traditionally, the Old Testament is considered to have three parts. The law, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the wisdom literature have referred to by its chief book, the Psalms. Thus, Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of it all. Literally everything in the Bible is about him. 
The Bible can only be understood if it is seen to be about him. So Jesus fulfills the prophets who said the Messiah will be God, Isaiah 9, and will suffer and be killed, Isaiah 53. He fulfills all the ceremonial law since he is the sacrifice, the priest, and the temple to which all the ritual pointed to. He fulfills the moral law for he alone lived it personally, exemplifying righteousness and doing it all as our substitute, satisfying it for us. He even fulfills all the history of the Bible. He is the true prophet, the priest, the king, to which all prophets, priests, and kings point to. He is the seed of Abraham, David's greater son, the true Jonah, greater than Jonah, the true Solomon, greater than Solomon. And we can go on and on and on. Boaz, was a, the kinsman redeemer, was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Esther, right, as she was an intermediary for her people, that was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And someone, Jesus said, someone greater than Moses is here. All of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And Peter's reminded, these promises, okay, they're grounded in the very nature and character of God. They're available to all of us today. And the result is that we have become partakers in the divine nature. This word here, this phrase, you may become, in the Greek, it denotes a process. And it implies the ongoing growth that must characterize the Christian life. Isn't that comforting? You may become that it's a process, that I don't have to be perfect all at once. Even Peter's reminding me that you're going to grow, and it's going to be a process, and it's going to be painful at times. But you can keep banking on the promises of God as God is forming you. It's not that we become these little demigods. When we're saved, we don't cease being human. And isn't this obvious? But Peter had to combat, Paul had to combat that teaching. Rather, it is through the impartation of a new nature by the indwelling Holy Spirit that believers become partakers or sharers is another word in the moral nature of God. And you know what that does, guys? It enables to have spiritual communion with God now because of that fact. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the development of this new life demands continuous communion and obedience with the one who saved us. Then Peter comes to having escaped. Having escaped, this phrase conveys the picture of a successful flight from danger. How many of you have ever had these? You're about to experience some like terrible thing or possibly fatal thing, but at the last minute you're saved. And after looking back, right, hindsight's always 20-20, you, you, you acknowledge that. If it had not been for that thing that saved me, man, I'd be, I'd be a goner or I'd be toast. That's, that's what Peter's trying to capture. It's speaking also of our past old life and our deliverance from it, having escaped. Um, after I'd left um, one of the youth, uh, youth ministry positions I took years ago, um, Christ really had to do a healing work in my life because I, I had found my identity in the ministry and not Jesus. And after, uh, only realizing that after leaving this, this youth ministry I served, and I was able to um, go down to uh, Hawaii, and man, God was just breaking me. I mean, Hawaii is where I was born and raised. And um, also had a very troubled uh, past life, made many mistakes, 
And uh, as we talked about symbols, right, baptism, communion, those are good symbols. Those are like, you know, memorial stones. But we also have bad symbols, don't we? Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a place that when we see it, it, it incites something, maybe a mistake we've made. And uh, as I was working in Hawaii, uh, I was able to drive past places and just be reminded of, of the places that, you know, where I've made mistakes. And, you know, God was doing a work in me. He was, he, you know, I know that he brought me to Hawaii through work for that very reason. Just saying, Chris, your identity is not in what you do, your ministry, your work, who you're trying to build your self-image into. Your identity is solely in me. And I remember, like, just battling, like, just driving and looking at places, too, that, that man, you know, it just incites this memory, painful memory. And I just remember just being broken and the Lord just clearly just commanding and, and reminding me of my identity. You are Chris. You're a child of God. That's not you. That's not you. Those in Christ have escaped that, that moral corruption of the old life. The places we should have been, the judgment we deserved, we've escaped that. And it's also interesting here because the way that the sentence is, is structured is that this escape is a result of God, having escaped because of what God has done. But it also implies effort on your part, coming back to life and godliness. God births the new life, but we need to be obedient in godliness, following him. Do you see that? There's like this partnership of God working and us being obedient. That, that song that Hannah sang, Trust and Obey. Corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This corruption refers to the process of, of, of decay. It conveys a picture of just things deteriorating. The term, this, it, it depicts the moral filth and the pollution of the world without God. It's the very opposite of the divine nature. Second Peter 1, 5 through 9. We're not going to break this down because I'm going to divert here, but I just wanted to read this to you. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Wow. If we're not, what is Peter saying? He lists these eight qualities. And as Christ's followers, remember, he's talking about this, this, this process. There, it involves growth. And because there's been life given, there is going to be change that follows. Right? An illustration that, that often pictures this is how many of you are able to stand on a highway, right? The new Seward Highway, and there's a truck going uh, 85 miles an hour, and you just wanted to be brave, so you stood in front of it, and you got hit. Could any of you just leave that saying, oh, that wasn't bad. I'm going to do that next week. But yet... There's a David Crowder song that captures that, right? It talks about the, um, the, the, the glory of God and the gospel of God impacting with the total depravity and sinfulness of man, and there's a collision. 
And it's that principle here that you've encountered a force greater than a Mack truck going 85 miles an hour. You've been given birth through this, through this force, the cosmic, awesome, wonderful God. It's going to do something. You can't leave like, whatever. That's why Peter is saying, if you lack these qualities, you are so nearsighted and blind. And I think so many Christians are nearsighted and blind. Okay, I'm not saying this as a judgment statement. I'm saying this because I know this to be true of myself. And this is what I want to talk about today is what's called the gospel gap. This is what theologians have termed the called the gospel gap. And just to give you a picture of the gospel gap, most Christians, we understand, we understand this. We're forgiven in the past of our sins, right? Like, you know what? I was, I was jacked up. I made so many mistakes, God. My problem was with you, right? I sinned against you, God, but yet you've cleansed me. You've forgiven me. And we understand that. And a lot of the Christians also understand that, you know what? I'm going to spend eternity with you, right? I know that I have a future hope and glory. Praise God. But I think where you and I have major issues is today in the here and now. What are the implications of the gospel for my life today? And so many Christians, we live in this gospel gap. It's like we have a house, and in the middle of our living room is this hole. And we just like walk around it. Or we attempt to fill that hole with other things. I wanted to show you a clip. Of a, of a friend of mine, uh, his name's Dave Choi. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor now in Chicago and um, just does a, an awesome job communicating the gospel in a few minutes as well as address, uh, ad, um, explaining things that we attempt to fill our lives with. So here's the clip. What I believe what a pastor said, the gospel is not the A, B, C of the Christian life. It's the A through Z. It's everything of the Christian life. The gospel says this, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. You know, I'm I'm kind of ashamed to admit this because I I try to portray this image that I'm a man's man. But I want to confess to you, come clean with this. I do like a few Disney movies. Some of you guys got way too excited. And, uh, but my favorite of all, my favorite of all is a movie called Beauty and the Beast. And I'll tell you why. Thank you. Some of you Lion Kings are, fans are hating on me right now. But I'll tell you why. It's because, it's, it's for a deep reason, because Belle, of all the Disney ladies, was by far the finest. Come on now. I mean, because she was one of those rare people who were beautiful on the inside and on the outside. How do I know this? Because I spent a little time with her. And I saw the way she was so devoted and loving her father, even though he wasn't all there. And not only that, but I knew she wasn't superficial when this player named Gaston tried to step to her. And he was like, yo, what up, girl? How you doing? And he was straight diesel. When I saw him on the screen, I was like, is that me? Why'd you laugh? And she, in my imagination, perhaps, she was like, she put her hand to his face and was like, talk to the hand, homie. And when I saw her do that, in my imagination, I was like, that's my girl. But what is it about this story that is so compelling from culture to culture and generation to generation? Because if you really break it down to its basic elements, it's a really strange story. Like if I had seen the movie and I had talked to you after, it's like, yo, you got to see this movie. Okay, what's it about? It's about this beautiful girl who falls in love with an animal. (laughs) So why are we so drawn to this story? I don't think it's because we connect with Belle, though some of you may think you're all that, and so you try to connect with Belle. But for most of us, it's because we connect with the beast. 
Because as we saw this story unfold and we saw Belle slowly begin to love him and when she kissed him, a symbol of her devoted love to him, there was something within us that resonated with that beast with the hope that maybe, just maybe, someone will see us in our unattractiveness and still love us. One Christian author puts it like this. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, what we long for is not for someone to see our strengths and to like us. You see, because anyone can do that. You know, our whole culture is built on that premise. I mean, every single one of us are like approval junkies, just shooting ourselves up with approval all our lives. I remember as a kid, my dad was all about getting all A's. And so I would try to do everything I possibly could to get all A's. But one day, literally, I got one B plus in a gifted class, and I wept in the garage because I knew that he wouldn't approve. And then I went to boarding school, and I went to this top boarding school in Illinois where all these 200, like the 200 biggest nerds of the state came, and, and I was no longer the smartest kid in my class, and genius is everywhere. And so I tried to find my identity in something else, in sports, and then I became the class clown. And then I came to Wheaton, and at Wheaton I figured out the rule here was to be as spiritual and as involved with ministry and be a leader. That's what Wheaton was all about. So I became those things so that I would gain the approval of others. Then I went to seminary, and it was all about theological acumen and preaching gifts. And then I went to ministry, and it was about growing your church and having a multi-ethnic ministry and preaching good sermons. And I did all these things until the ultimate of all ultimates. I went to the mission field. And there God began to break me as I realized that even good things like missions I was doing for the wrong reasons because deep down there was this deep-seated insecurity that maybe God would not approve of me if I didn't do the most radical thing. And it was so tiring. And if only, if only I had heard the good news of the gospel that God loves messed up sinners. He doesn't tolerate you. He's not like, okay, I guess I'll forgive you. I did promise that. No, no, no. He delights and welcomes sinners. For God so loved the world. And it doesn't matter. Anyone today can come to this gospel. And as you come to Jesus, as you really are, broken, messed up, struggling, and you taste the grace of Almighty God, guess what? You will see just how good the news is. And as you see how good the news is, you will be compelled to go and to share that news. And oftentimes, as Christians, we do live with a gospel gap. And what stands in our way at times? What prevents us from being in that sphere of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? What prevents us from growing in the qualities that Peter has listed for us? And the answer is simple. Something is standing in the way of knowing a pretty darn important person. And I know that we can boil it down simply to the word sin. And that is true. But I think a lot of us, we struggle with what's called gospel amnesia. It's not that the reality doesn't exist. It's that we forget about the reality. Here are some of the results of the gospel gap. Um, number one, there's a blindness to identity. I think many Christians underestimate the, the presence and power of indwelling sin. Many Christians don't grasp that there is a war waging right now. We're in war. And even the gospel writers capture that. Galatians chapter 5, all throughout Romans Paul understood that, right? We have the sinful nature, we have the spirit, and they're at war with each other so that we're often confused as what to do. 
this war exists within the heart of every believer. A lot of us are unaware of how prone we are to wander after God replacements. We fail to see that our greatest problems exist within, not without. I've worked with young people for a number of years now. And one of the things I often wondered, and I don't say this as, as, I don't say this as, a, as a judgment statement, but I often wondered is like, why, does, why doesn't the gospel, why does it not taste so sweet to so many young people today? Why is it that I'm talking to young people and I'm talking about sin, I'm talking about painting them a, a picture just of the beautiful Savior that they're just like, eh, whatever. I'm going to go play Call of Duty now. Why, why is that? And I think part of the reason is us as parents. We've parented in a way where we've created little Pharisees. And I can tell you, this is a battle with me in my own parenting today, right? Molding our kids to behave a certain way, even in the church. Like, don't bring any attention to yourself, you know? We don't, want, we don't want them to think that we're bad parents. Instead of dealing with issues of the heart. And so many young people have been raised in this way. Like I said, I say this as a, as a parent who's done so. And often young people don't see themselves as sinners in a desperate need for a savior. We've making sin light. You know, one of, the, one of the greatest strategies of the enemy today that I think he's done is he's, he's made sin laughable. And I'm so guilty of this, of movies I've seen where sin abounds and I just laugh at it. That's so funny. That guy just committed adultery. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I just laugh and laugh away. And the enemy, what has he done? He's taken these things. And we just laugh at it. The things that put Jesus on the cross, we laugh at. The saying goes, till sin tastes bitter, Christ will never taste sweet. This blindness to identity. Jesus not only forgives me and gives me a future, but he also gives me an identity in the here and now as a child of God. And this is the new identity. And all of us are living some sort of identity. We all are. We're projecting something. But the sad reality is that many Christians are living with gospel amnesia. It's like we really forget who we are in Christ. We get this case of gospel amnesia, and it's at these times that we look for identity replacements. How do I know this? Oh, I've seen this in my life looking for other things to, to replace my identity as a child of God. You know, when we begin to question even um, who we are, we're, we're questioning the finishing work of Jesus. Number two, so not only blindness to identity, but we also see blindness to God's provision. Remember life and godliness in the here and now, his promises, his death, his resurrection. When we have gospel amnesia, we forget about the great provision of, of, that he's provided through his son, Jesus. How many of you have ever battled with that? Or, you know what, you made a mistake, you know, maybe a big mistake at some point in your life, and you're just like, man, God, how could you love me? And we hear the voices of the enemy saying, dude, you're not, you're not really a child of God. A child of God wouldn't do that. And I've fallen into that. Gospel amnesia. I've forgotten his provision that, you know what, there is no one, there is nothing, all right? There is no court where I can be tried and held guilty for my sins because of what Jesus has done. And it's believing in that provision. But when we have gospel amnesia, we forget about it. Third thing I see here is a blindness to God's process. You know, as people, uh, 
we naturally take the path of least resistance and we forget that, you know what, God has a process and he's working in that process. He, he, he wants to mold us into the image of his son. And you know what? He uses life circumstances. He'll use the flat tires of life to mold us. And wanted to quickly list things that fill the gap. This is taken from a book called How People Change. And if there's a book I can recommend, read that book. Uh, Timothy, um, Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp. But they list a couple things. This, <clears throat> and you're going to see a, a, char- a characteristic of these things. First one is formalism. This is the thing that uh, a person that says, I participate in the regular meetings and ministries of the church, so I feel like my life is under control. I'm always in church, but it really has little impact on my heart or how I live. I've become judgmental and impatient with those who do not have the same commitment as I do. Formalism. Next thing is legalism. I live by the rules, rules I create for myself and rules I create for others. I feel good if I can keep my own rules and I become arrogant and full of contempt when others don't meet the standards I set for them. There's no joy in my life because there's no grace to be celebrated. Mysticism. I'm engaged in the incessant pursuit of an emotional experience with God. I live for the moments when I feel close to him and I often struggle with discouragement when I don't feel that way. I may change churches often too, looking for one that will give me what I'm looking for. Activism. I recognize the missional nature of Christianity and I'm passionately involved in fixing this broken world. But at the end of the day, my life is more of a defense of what's right than a joyful pursuit of Christ. Biblicalism. I know my Bible inside out, but I do not let it master me. I've reduced the gospel to a mastery of biblical content and theology, so I'm intolerant and critical of those with lesser knowledge. Therapyism. I talk a lot about the hurting people in our congregation and how Christ is the only answer for their hurt, yet even without realizing it, I have made Christ more therapist than Savior. I view hurt as a greater problem than sin, and I subtly shift my greatest need from my, from my moral failure to my unmet needs. Socialism. Social, like ism. The deep fellowship and friendships I find at church have become their own idol. The body of Christ has replaced Christ himself. And the gospel is reduced to a network of fulfilling Christian relationships. Brothers and sisters, what does this show us? That there are idols outside of the church and there are also idols inside the church. And it's the idols inside the church that should concern us the most as Christians. It's easy for us, okay, as Christians to, to identify worldly idols, money, power, selfish ambition, um, sexual morality, so on, so on, so on. But it's the idols inside of the church that we have a harder time identifying. For instance, we know it's wrong to bow to the God of power, but it's also wrong to bow to the God of preferences. We know it's wrong to worship immorality, but it's also wrong to worship morality. We know it's wrong to seek freedom by breaking the rules, but it's also wrong to seek freedom by keeping them. We know God hates unrighteousness, but he also hates self-righteousness. We know crime is a sin, but so is control. If people outside the church try to save themselves by being bad, people inside the church try to save themselves by being good. And the good news of the gospel is that both inside and outside of the church, there's only one Savior and Lord, and that is Jesus. And he came not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to affectionately strip away our slavery to lesser things so that we might become truly free. 
And these replacements, guys, are attractive. Why are they attractive? Because they have a little truth to them. Community is good. Emotions are good. I mean, rules, I mean, you know, to live and to be obedient and to, and to have principles are good. But what we've, what we've done is we make them gods. We, be, we, we made idols of them, and we make them as the greatest thing. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul talks about pretensions that have set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And the word pretension, what it means is it's a plausible lie. Okay, a lie that has enough truth that it can be taken as truth. Does that make sense? For example, um, <clears throat> when I was younger, um, I used to get a kick out of this. Um, going to places, for example, I, I, you may think I'm very weird, but like going to Costco, I once had a black vest on and a lanyard with my keys on it. And I, I like to play along. So I remember, uh, I don't remember what the person was looking for, but then, excuse me, sir, can you help me find this? And I said, sure, no problem. And I, you know, Costco is, is my second home for a family of six. Costco is the second home, right? And Costco is also second church. It's where you run into everybody. And like, hey, you know. But I remember this person asking me for, for this thing, and I just let him right to it. I was like, I know Costco inside out. Took him right there. Here you go. And they said, thank you. I said, no problem. I remember one Sunday going to Nordstrom after we had this joint worship service, and I was, I was wearing a suit. And I remember being downstairs in the men's section, and this gentleman coming, hey, could you, could you help me find a shirt? And I just said, what's your size, you know? Like, I'm, I'm about a 30, 32, 33, about 16 and a half here, and I led him to the shirts. And I remember going to the Best Buy, and my friend worked in the Geek Squad, and I had a, he gave me a Geek Squad shirt. And I just, I just know enough about computers just to make me a little dangerous, okay? And uh, a person coming there and asking me for some help, and I just answered their question, and they had no idea. Those are plausible lies. Being able to present something that's convincing but not necessarily true in its, in, in its whole entirety. And that's what the enemy does. Pretensions. Plausible lies. He's saying that in these things, all right, in legalism, formalism, socialism, biblicalism, whatever it is, all right, these are where life is. And these things can be replacements, but we have to remember, we have to remember that this is all about Jesus. And the practical application in, in closing here is this. Is, you know, are you living in a gospel gap? Are you experiencing the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus Christ alone? Where are you grabbing your identity from? I mean, you know, as, as my friend Dave was saying, like, if you, do you see yourself in that boat too? Just shooting yourself for approval in, in, in other means, in other ways, instead of, completely acknowledging that, no, your identity is solely in Jesus. And I know that these are all matters of the heart, but I just want to challenge you to, t- to go down that journey with our Lord Jesus. Maybe it's this week, um, just devoting time to just enjoying Jesus and praying from your heart, saying, Jesus, reveal, reveal to me areas of my life that, I, that, that you want to change. Jesus, if it hurts, if it hurts, it's Okay. So, so often we're scared to pray that, aren't we? But it's so good because it's through those processes that we come to see him for who he is. And we come to understand his great love for us. So I just want to challenge you with that today. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Learn to preach it every day to yourself. The gospel has been explained as, as not just 
It's not just this diving board that we jump off. No, it's the pool. It's the ocean of water that we jump into. And as we grow, we just get deeper and deeper into it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I know that your word, your word gives life because they're spoken by you. And Father, I know that this may have just been a simple reminder, God. I know that many believers here are aware of these truths. But Lord, if you instructed Peter to continuously remind the believers with these simple truths, I want to do the same thing today, God. Reminders that we are of the beloved, that we are sealed, that we are forgiven, that we have hope, that we have the ability to overcome the sin that would entangle us. That there is reconciliation, there is restoration, and there is hope. Father, we uh, come before you and we first ask you, would you, one, forgive me, God. I know oftentimes I find myself in that gospel gap. I know I find myself with, uh, diagnosed with that gospel amnesia, forgetting who I am, forgetting your great provision and forgetting that everything in this life is a process. And God, forgive me too for many times for taking sin so lightly. Father, I just pray for all of us as a corporate body. I'm asking you to revive our hearts again. I pray that we would be revived every day as we, as we came to your word and we tasted the sweet new mercies every day. Jesus, how you can love, how you can love a person like me is beyond my comprehension. But it's a promise and you've done it and you do. And Lord, I'm praying for those first in here, Lord, that have been attempting to find their identity in something other than you, Lord. Whether it's involvement in the church or whether it's something outside of this church or whatever it may be, God. I'm praying that you would call them out by name and tell them as you set your gaze on them that they are your child. Father, I'm praying also for those that have been struggling with sin. Maybe there's been a certain sin that's just been nagging them, God. The answer isn't just to, it's just to like, you know, get more counseling or do this or do that. The answer is to set their gaze on the risen Savior, Jesus. And I pray that through that, through that, through that setting the gaze on Jesus, you would bring healing and freedom there, God. Father, I'm praying also for those that perhaps have been hurt in the past. And forgive us, Lord, as, as Christians for ever painting you as a therapist and not a savior, God. I'm praying, Lord, for those that just have have experienced great hurt and pain. 
that they would also set their gaze upon you. And through that, through that, that's where healing would come, Lord. Through being known by you and loved by you and accepted by you. Father, I'm also praying for those who don't think they have a problem. I know that was me for the longest time, Lord. Thinking, what does a cross have to do with me? And God, only you, only you can make it known to them. Only you can birth life. Only you can regenerate a soul. Only you can awaken people. And I'm asking that you do that, God, through your process and through your time. Help us as Christians to never be judgmental or never to say, you know, to never look down on anyone. I pray that if we ever found ourselves in that place, that we would just look to the cross. No, and that's through the cross that you loved messed up people, period. So God, I also just pray for everyone here as they, as they depart. They spend some time with you this week, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to people. I pray that in the quiet of their room, at a keyboard, at a laptop, or just in their closet or wherever they may be, they may have a living, just fresh encounter with the living God. I believe that, God. I believe that you want to encounter your people today, right now, throughout the week, any moment, every day. And I'm praying that for people this week, that they would encounter the living God. Thank you again, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to work for our salvation. Thank you that we don't have to run around trying to approve ourselves to you. Thank you that you just love us perfectly and wholly. Now empower us by your spirit to walk in the freedom that we have, to live lives that are obedient to our Lord and Master Jesus. To you be all the glory forever and ever. Your son's holy and perfect name we pray. Amen.